All right, three, two, one. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest, a returning guest. Her name is Roberta Glass. She runs the True Crime Report on YouTube. And last time we talked, we chatted about uh, some of the events. It was March 30th was our last interview. We talked about Bob Ruff's investigation or Fantasia or Fantastical Investigation into the West Memphis Three. And in, in the interim, I've talked to, we're going to talk tonight about Nexium, this uh, cult that's popped up. It was headed by Keith Ranieri. Uh, but I had talked with one of the kind of main observers, known observers of Nexium from the outside. His name was Frank Parlato. You guys can listen to that on my YouTube channel or my Spreaker channel. That was from April 28th, 2018. But Roberta, are you there? Yeah, thanks. Right. Awesome. Thanks for being here. So, uh, you know, we have a lot of, we've, we did a lot of talking before the show. But we have a lot of lot of things have developed in the, since the last time we've talked. There were arrests of uh, Bronfman, the, one of these the daughters of the very wealthy Bronfman uh, spirits or, or alcohol family, and Nancy Salzman, somebody who I had talked to Frank Parlato about that was happening. And uh, it's great that you're able to be here on the show because you have firsthand uh, experience looking at some of these trials down in New York. Can you? Uh, First, maybe you can, for people who don't know your name, talk a little bit about your background and interest in true crime and also uh, what your experience is watching these Nexium trials. Um, I, um, I live in New York. I'm a true crime fan. I started, I guess, I started recording just like little audio pieces on um, YouTube and Spreaker about different uh, crime cases with a heavy interest in the West Memphis Three, um, and also in the way that um, a murder case is spun, uh, with a you know when PR gets involved, and um, so I started covering Nexium, and I went to Keith Ranieri's bail hearing, which was incredible because of what of how unusual the bail package was. And how, um, how was that unusual? Well, for one, first of all, Keith Ranieri, the cult is 20 years old, and uh, Claire Bronfman is said to have put $100 million into it. So, but Keith Ranieri himself says he has no income, and the only thing he owns is half of a property in Albany, New York, which is the headquarters for the cult. So he's he's saying, and when he was arrested, he was arrested in Mexico with all this encrypted devices around him, um, with a sort of vague reason why he was there, and uh, a lot of women around him, including Allison Mack. Right. So it just didn't look good. It looked like he was fleeing. He had gone to Mexico to flee this. Uh, possible future arrest. So that was w one thing. He was an obvious flight risk from that. And secondly, he didn't want to just, he offered a hundred million dollars, uh, I believe that $10 million bail, I'm sorry, $10 million bail. But he said it was coming from a trust. And Keith Ranieri has this really smooth talking, um, charismatic, kind of like a 
Park Avenue, Better Call Saul type, um, you know, no one you would watch, want, watch, want watching your wallet while you went to the bathroom type lawyer, you know what I mean? Was, was, that, was that Mark Agnafillo? Yes. Okay, so he was there. So, and the reason I know his name is you had told me about an interview featuring Agnafillo being interviewed by Megyn Kelly, so I watched that last night, so we can reference that later too. Right, so, but the very interesting part of this bail package was Keith Ranieri was going to be protected by armed guards. And that was the sticking point for the judge. The judge was saying, well, are these armed guards to keep critics out or to keep Keith Ranieri from fleeing? And if Keith Ranieri did flee, and, you know, we know that he has the... Uh, support to maybe do that right. from powerful people like Claire Bronfman, who wasn't indicted yet. Right, at so, that time. He also, the reason he fled to Mexico is also he had a network in Mexico as well that led up to Carlos Salinas' son, if I remember correctly, one of the former presidents. Right, and a really interesting article came out about that today saying that he wanted to put make, make him president of Mexico so that Keith Ranieri could rule Mexico secretly. Right, so the son of Carlos Salinas would be Mexico. That was in the Daily Beast, correct? Yes, uh, yeah. So, um, so, but what's interesting about the armed guards, so I kept, like, just meditating on this armed guards, and I was listening back to that clip. It's a really famous clip of Ranieri talking to three women and um, schooling them of, you know, about the their kind of defects of knowledge of defects of knowledge, not knowing how how things work the way he did. You know that clip. Yes. Oh, and at exactly. the end of it, he says, uh, "I've been shot at for my beliefs." And then he says, "I've had to contemplate whether to get guards armed or not." Right. So it's really from him. That idea of armed guards has to be from Keith Ranieri to feed his ego. That I believe that he thinks that he was indicted because he's too powerful, too dangerous, too unconventional, too effective for the man, meaning America, you know. Oh, wow. so, yeah. And it's just another way to feed his ego to say that he's like a super important man and that he, he needs armed guards because he's just, his ideas are too powerful. And so, so he was saying, his attorney was saying that, you were inside the courtroom, right? Yeah, right. So his attorney mm -hmm. is saying that to the judge. And oh, did you get any, did you get any read from the judge about well, the how? The judge was asking questions, saying, well, what is the purpose? Is it to keep, and he says, well, it achieves both. And he really couldn't articulate why these armed guards were, were going to be effective and could they shoot or not. If Keith Ranieri fled, did they have the the um, authority to shoot shoot him? And it was really to make everybody comfortable. I think that was one of his arguments. But it, it, it he just got really tied up in it. And then he said at one point, the armed guards are really just the icing on the cake. Like, just forget about those armed guards <laughs> and get back to something else. And then they were talking about the trust, which was really just a front for Claire Bronfman. Gotcha. And so they started referencing her without saying her name. So. Gotcha. Yeah. Interesting. And so then that was actually that whole 
you know, 10 million bail was denied, and he was just basically thrown in the thrown in jail, and still there to this day. So he never achieved bail. Mac herself got, I think she, her parents put up the five million dollars, really in a, a huge bail amount. So she's out. And of, and an ankle monitor too. And an ankle they, monitor. Most of them have ankle monitors. Almost all of them do. Yeah. So I mean, I think uh, that's the same thing with uh, what's his name. Uh, what's the guy who was the rapist out there? Weinstein. I think Weinstein paid $10 million or something. I forgot what his yeah. bail was. Yeah, it's huge. Huge numbers. So, um, and did, what were your thoughts about the prosecutor? I mean, the prosecutors are in there making that argument to the judge to have no bail. What was your your view of the New York prosecutors? And did, was, was Schneiderman still around at that bail healing? Or did he, was he, did he fall to the Me Too movement? I don't remember. Yeah, I don't think he was. I don't remember. He does. He's not the one that sticks out in my mind. Um, I don't think so. The the three prosecutors were there were junior, like sort of the three female junior prosecutors. Interesting. And, do you, and so they come in in their sort of Ann Taylor suits, you know, really earnest and really. Um, they look like they could be Nexium members, which is the, it's like made for TV movie, and they all have long dark hair and they and they they are they have been really effective my fear is that they're not um street savvy enough to to deal with um one claire bronfman's um attorney who's like a leslie um abramson type you know really aggressive really smart um and uh, there's some issues, I guess, um, about uh, none of the defendants are allowed to talk to each other. Hmm. So um, what was brought up was that they were communicating using third parties and uh, in, and possibly intimidating witnesses. And so Keith Ranieri's lawyer um, stood up in the, I don't know, is the word swarmy? Swarmy is fashion. It was like, listen... You know, I'm offended, almost like I'm offended at the accusation right. that I would do anything immoral. Yeah, smarmy. And, yeah. Is that right? Yeah, and he, it, people in front of me were shaking their heads and laughing because it was so, such a like a feign, of, yeah, faked feign. Mora- yeah. His morality and trying to just play up his morality. And then um, Susan Nichols, who's Claire Bronfman's, the Leslie Abramson type type esque lawyer said, Listen, all you have to do if you think that's happening is come talk to me. <laughs> like that is the most oh, wow. manipulative argument too. They yeah. are really they're really um foxy. Well I mean the, the the prosecutors there are really I mean those three may be just a front for a savvier, hopefully more experienced prosecutorial head. But they're dealing with a multi headed Hydra above the surface and then underneath the surface, the tentacles go everywhere. I mean, there are rumors about trafficking people from Libya, Libya, which, you know, some people have discounted, but, uh, you know, human trafficking. And and we know that indictment was about trafficking children under the age of 14. And I think that it's also remarkable, and I, I think that I haven't found any facts to, uh, counter, contradict my position, which is, they haven't leaked about who those kids are, or where they're from. Nothing has come out of the prosecutor's office, and I don't think anything's come from any of the defendants about the 
the particular details about who these victims are. Have you heard anything about that? No. Yeah. And I, I think it won't be disclosed if it, you know, it would probably be, I would think right, it like would John Doe, Jane out. Doe, yeah. But I think that it's still remarkable. There's, I'm so used to things leaking out or somebody third party saying something that uh, it, there's still some elements to these cases that haven't come out. So, and when you were there, did you see, oh, what was the, the media presence like? Um, a lot of women uh, covering it. Uh, I met, um, forgetting her, I think her first name is Melissa uh, Roberto, and she's covering um, Nexium for Radar, Radar Online, which is one of my guilty pleasures. And she talked, to, we talked a lot about Allison Mack, who, well, the first time that I went in, I was really intimidated because I'd never been in a, that kind, I've been in like family court supporting a friend of mine and her divorce. And I, I'd never been in a big courtroom and you have to check your phone and my, the underwire, my bra was like sending off the alarm, you know, it's just, it was, you know, nerve wracking. So I get there kind of like right at the last minute and I look at, and there's like one seat left in the front row. And I was like, oh, wow, I'm not shy. I'll go sit in the, like, great seat. I'll sit in the front. And I look up, and I'm sitting, like, too, like, super close to Allison Mack. Wow, interesting. But she's so gray and kind of horsey. Like, she doesn't, she either photographs incredibly well, she's incredibly photogenic, or she's just kind of deteriorated from, um, eating 800 calories and having her soul sucked by Keith Ranieri and next to him, yeah, you know. The dread of the future. Yeah, I mean, she, her charges are grim. I mean, she, I mean, I don't know who's talking or what's going on, but she, the charges against her are not, uh, you know, probation if she gets convicted. She's very strange. She's just, you can't get kind of a, there's kind of like no, I don't know, human she does. She looks disassociated. Interesting. And like she doesn't realize the trouble she's in. And so that was my first impression. And I, you know, made a little recording, you know, mentioning that. But when I talk, and I mentioned, I said, well, what do you think? When I was talking on the second time at the um, sort of the follow up um, to Melissa uh, Russo, she said, oh, she, I, the first time she was here, she was cracking jokes with her lawyer. I, I don't, mm. I don't know when is she going to make this plea deal? Right. You know, that's the thing. And it, it just, I, I mean, I would be running so fast if I were facing life in prison for the charges she were, she was facing. And, uh, I would be probably, I don't know. Ready, I would, I would be, ready I would to be going talk. to talk. Yeah. Right. I mean, I'm, ass no, I'm assuming they no. really want Ranieri. He's the main malefactor. Um, maybe, I don't know how serious they are about Bronfman or Salzman, but um, well, you know, according to some of the stories, she's really not, you know, she's she's been involved in a lot of wrongdoing. Right. She was known as Pimp Mac. She was, I, I believe she was, she thought she was completely in love with Ranieri. Mm -hmm. And she was um, getting him underage girls, and um, she was very um, active in the DOS, the, the branding portion of Jeunesse, the quote-unquote Orwellian uh, titled Women's Empowerment part of um, Nexium. But um, 
I think I lost my train of thought. Oh, sorry. But you know what? You know, an interesting observation is that a lot of women are covering the trial, but there's a very lack of men other than Ranieri. Maybe this guy, Carlos Slim, but, you know, it, does, it seems like it's really a female, majority female-oriented story because they seem to be the majority of, you know, the victims or things that have happened wrong. But I do, I do think, think it's odd that it was just really Ranieri who... You know, it's running. There's not like a bunch. It doesn't seem like he had a bunch of henchmen other than women. There was a male group, um, and it was called the Society of Protectors. And that was his men's (laughs) touchy-feely group. But I don't know a lot. You're right. I don't, nobody knows a lot about the men, what the men's role uh, was besides kind of, um, being his proxy to rule Mexico, you know. Gotcha. Uh, uh, but the thing of, I, I just remembered what I wanted to say about Allison Mack that's not really getting, or it's getting reported incorrectly, okay. which is uh, she was under pressure to take the fall for DOS before all these indictments came down. That was like the rumor going around that she should take the fall because that was the ethical. This uh, Nexium loves to use the word ethical while right. doing the most unethical things. It's like Scientology. And, That's a huge word in Scientology, too. Ethics. Right. I mean, everything Ranieri did was an idea of someone else's. Even the, the his, his um, nickname Vanguard was from, from his favorite um, video game. I mean, how lame is that? Wow. I mean, yeah, the guy had zero originality. Anyway, so... Just to cut in, too, DOS stands for Dominus Obsequious... What is... Oh, God, I just lost it. Dominus Obsequious Sororium, Lord over the Obedient Female Companions. That's the acronym, so... Sorry, just wanted to explain that. You still there? Yeah, just what you think of. Just what you think of when you think of women's empowerment. Right, right. right. And we can go forward about Agnafilo talking with Megan Kelly, saying that's something women wanted to do. And he's going to prove it in trial, actually, that DOS was fully 100% consensual, you know, female relationship, getting branded with a laser that hurt for 30 minutes or something like that, you know. So. Right. So that connects a little bit with what I'm saying about Alice Mack, is she said the, ta- the, the branding or was her idea because it's just like a tattoo, if a tattoo burned off your flesh and you and people had to hold you down while you got a tattoo and you had you were told to think of your master while you got a tattoo that maybe would be more like it but it's you know that's what she told um the new york times that it that that was the her inspiration for the branding part but they you know so so the press just went around saying oh allison mack this was her idea the branding was her idea but that's the that's the story, and the lawyer, um, uh, the Megyn Kelly interview, Ranieri's lawyer said that uh, he has five witnesses to say that that DOS was all done um, from their ideas. Right, Agnafila, Mark Agnafila was his name. Agnafila, sorry. Yeah, okay. I, so that was a very recent uh, interview, that Megyn Kelly interview, right? Yes. It was within the last two or three days. So she started off with the, she was talking to Catherine Oxenberg, whose daughter, India Oxenberg, is involved. And Catherine Oxenberg's book about Nexium just dropped within two days, two days ago, which is titled Captive, A Mother's Crusade 
to save her daughter from a terrifying cult. And she had she had some very interesting inside information that I hadn't heard before. Um, you know about people in Mexico. This is the Mexican tide saying, you know, do not publicly name me or I'll be killed. <laughs> and she flat out yeah. says he wasn't joking. Not only was he referencing yeah. the cult's potential power in Mexico because it was populated with so many of the country's rich, famous, and most elite citizens, but he was also acknowledging the danger that one of those citizens was Emiliano Salinas, his father, Carlos, the most feared man in the country, would do anything for his son. So, you know, there's some high-stakes things happening, definitely. But India, that was really the Megyn Kelly interview with Catherine Oxenberg, and then she talked, they cut away, talked to Agna Philo, Megyn Kelly did, and then returned to somebody who I think has been around the cult kind of field, Rick Allen Ross, talking about the cults. And I, I thought that he had some involvement with Nexium. He heart. was sued by Nexium. Yes, he had the pleasure right. of being sued and by Nexium, yeah. So, yeah, and I think it was a really grueling lawsuit that he endured uh, with them. Yeah. I think that they really, uh, you know, dragged him through the brambles, so to speak. And I, I don't think he actually came out ahead. I think it was very expensive. And so, you know, it's kind of a yeah. terrible story that she didn't bring up. Megan Kelly didn't bring that aspect of up in the interview, which I think was a mistake. But... Um, mention one thing about uh, Catherine Oxenberg, yes. who's at every hearing and who I really admire. She's a really so. Did you, are mom. you seeing her there at the hearings? Every hearing. Oh, okay, so how many hearings total have you gone to? Two, okay, <laughs> two. But so I know that, okay. that she's at every one. Okay, the ones that I miss, she's there. She okay. is. She's really on it. This is to, because she wanted to get her daughter back. So, and she is incredibly well connected person right, right. And she's a she, literal princess i think if i remember right she, and she was on dynasty right. and she's well spoken and she's also sympathetic so right as her book drops her daughter is branded and not talking to her and in the cult right when this book comes out with all this publicity simon schuster book her daughter um is return comes back to her and says so she's moved on from Nexium. Yeah. So was that a negotiate negotiation? Not to, you know, was there uh, a negotiation know. that happened? Like, I'm not gonna. I'm gonna take stuff out of my book if you give me my. Her? Right. She might have had more, more information than she put in her book and used that as leverage. Who knows? It, it just. I wonder why nobody was asking that question. How did she? How did? How did that happen? Like. Yeah. What happened? Right. I mean, it's uh, it's a it's an important question. How did that happen so fast when she's been trying to get her back for like a decade? Right. I mean, it's been a long right. time. My dad wrote wrote um, something for Goldie Hawn, and she, she's she's just really like kind of you know smart but flaky kind of. That's yeah. what I I mean. That's kind of what I remember. Did see? So I, I wasn't surprised by that. Yeah. And and she has like that. Just she has that weird kind of like morally vague quality that didn't surprise me gotcha. yeah so so oxenberg dropped that book she uh was on this tv show and you what was the second when did you go to the second hearing what was that about was that the the decision okay. on bail yeah so this was a follow-up so keith ranieri is is the only one in jail and he he had some interesting habits in jail. He's in the kind of pedophile wing, A, because it's such a high-profile 
trial and B because he's a pedophile. So, um, he loves going, he loves eating like the horrible jail food and he's always there on time. But he also had this like really, um, annoying to the, uh, jail habit of getting bored and faking ailments. Hmm. So <laughs> he got in trouble and they told him he couldn't go to the clinic anymore. So when I saw him the first time, he looked like really, he looks like a cross between Charles Manson and like a self-helpy, effeminate, like John Gray or something hmm. with a, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, he has his gla- does he have his glasses on and everything? No, yeah. he oh, looks like um, greasy, he looked really greasy and ape-like when I saw him. What's his ethnicity? Do you know his background at all? Or what? I mean, you know he's from New York somewhere, but what's his... Do you know Albany. his... What's that? Albany. He's from Albany Albany's area from Albany. of New York. Is he Italian? Yeah. Is that what Ranieri is? Is Italian? Yeah. Uh, I would think so. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, don't know I, I just don't know. Um, is he French? I don't know. He's just, he's just such an epic myth maker that like so many cult leaders are. That it's... Um, it's it's interesting. The people who grew up with him said that he was always wanting to brag about his intellect and his abilities, even as like a 14, 15 year old. Interesting. And uh, that he was sexually rejected a lot by women. But um, the whole, he's, the whole, I mean, Nexium is really so much about like sucking off women's energy and, you know, not honoring their boundaries and like all the women are encouraged to, even if they're, that's not their sexuality to sleep with other women. So an interesting thing about India Oxenberg is that Claire Bronfman wanted her to be her slave and India Oxenberg rejected her. And Alison Mack became her slave master, mass mistress or whatever. So, um, Claire Bronfman. Oh, so Oh, God, there's so many interesting dynamics in the court. I mean, Claire Bronfman comes in with, like, kind of, like, just a sense. You really don't doubt that she grew up with tons of entitlements. And when people talk to her, they she'll, she will continue to sit while they, like, squat down next to her. Interesting. So uh, she, like, commands authority or something. Yeah. And the second time I saw Keith Raniere, he looked really excited to be there and really excited about the attention. I don't know if he's just happy to have company and for to be such a, a big trial. The judge said at one point we're going to need some more chairs because all the all the Nexium lawyers and defendants, even though um, two of them were missing, were having trouble fitting on the defense side of a very large courtroom. And Nancy Saltzman did this really odd thing where she didn't want to sit at the table. She, so she sat, she was still in the court section of the thing, but like as if she were a watcher. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like sitting facing the judge instead of sitting sideways facing the prosecution. Interesting. So she, she wanted to stare him down or something? She, no, I think she feels like she's not really a defendant. Like, she's mm. really, you know, just uh, just a... Um, just an observer or something, or just... An observer, not really in it. <laughs> well, that was back That was back then, though, right? So now it's different. 
No, that was when she was indicted. Oh, when she, wow. So even though, All so the this rest was, of the defendants were at the defense table, and she was sitting in this, I don't know if she couldn't fit, she didn't have enough chairs, but she sat there pretty early on. And I went right away to the bathroom, and she was sitting outside with her lawyer, and she has such a, all of them have such a hard look to their face. I thought to myself that I was like in the evil league of evil with wow, these people. That's interesting. And I mean, Claire Bronfman, if she were cast on a CSI or something as someone who murdered, had her husband murdered, it would be like from central casting. Wow. They're really dark. But um, Keith Ranieri the second time had this thing like he wasn't on, he wasn't at a hearing for the things that he was indicted for. It was like he was there because he was maybe negotiating a book deal or you know what I mean? At a press conference, you know, kind of like not, no sense of worry, very, you know, very looking. He always likes to look around. He's always trying to make eye contact with the other defendants. And there was one very interesting moment where Allison Mack was sitting, you know, facing forward with her elbows and hands, palms on the table. And Claire Bronfman and Nancy Salzman and her lawyers stood behind her. And had a little, like, meeting really close to her. Huh. Kind of a way to tell her she wasn't in it. Huh. So I don't know if they're putting pressure on her to take the fall, or if they're mad at her because they know she is going to make a deal. I don't know. It was very odd. It was, like, high school, and it seemed like they were trying to make her feel, you know, not in it. Not, not, in, the not in the group. Yeah, not in the clique. Not she's no clique. longer in the clique. Well, I mean, she's living at home. I got to think her parents are working on her. You know, like, come on, you're not going to jail for twenty years. She's got all the information, so I would, I would think that they should all be terrified that that's going to happen. And then what? Claire Bronfman, Kathy Russell, Lauren Salzman, and Nancy Salzman all were arrested within the last couple weeks, right? Or three weeks? Yeah. Um... The hearing I was at, um, two of them, uh, Lawrence Saltzman and Kathy Russell, weren't there. More they were coming the next day to work out the, the details of their bail. So the hearing I was at, the purpose was to see if the October start date for the trial was realistic. And the defense said that these three prosecutors who look so earnest and like they're working so hard. They're going through 60 encrypted devices wow. in discovery. Um, and they, and they stood up for themselves. They said, we really object to uh, the uh, defense calling us slow and uh, insinuating that we're incompetent. So I was like, you know, you really root for the three young, <laughs> pretty lawyers, you know, right. you just hope that they're, that they, I, I keep thinking that they should hire a ex-con man um, to uh, help them with strategy because I don't know if they're really street savvy enough to deal with some of the the stuff that's going to happen from the other you side. Know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if in those sixty encrypted devices, there's information and things that you know they're using, you know, mob mob terminology or cult language to explain things or Podesta language to communicate things that aren't clear you know i wouldn't be surprised at all if they you know if they have if these prosecutors don't know some of that lingo they might not grasp the totality of what these guys are up to 
these prosecutors uh, know they they refer to Nexium as a criminal empire when they do refer to it. Wow! And that's a really good description. That's and uh, but uh, and that's unlike what you were we were talking about before the interview, which was the New York Times letter <laughs> that the New York Love Times letter. and just another kind of mass fail by the New York Times um, writing about Nexium. Can you talk about that? Sure. Um, so, my understanding was that this New York Times Magazine cover story was in was orchestrated by Claire Bronfman as a way to put out positive press so that these indictments wouldn't happen. But the timing was all messed up. So, this love letter to Nexium saying um, how amazing the ideas it was and how incredible the people were and how even the people who were critics said that it really worked you know or parts of it were helpful and you know the most defining characteristic of Nexium is that it's a cult that does all the things that it's exploitative um it's it's um nobody goes into Nexium and comes out better right. you know no matter how many positive things and there really aren't any original ideas in it. I mean, I know that Scientology, you know, does Freud again, but at least it's a little bit more original. If you listen to those interviews with uh, Keith Ranieri and Allison Mack, I challenge you to understand what the heck he's saying. If there's any, like, meaning in those words, it's just like ethical, um, you know, like these sort of buzz, these sort of like... Self-empowerment buzzwords, you know, get all those things yeah, in. You know. Authentic. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the real like, you. Stumbled together. Arranged. Well, I yeah. think Rick Allen Ross on that Megyn Kelly uh, interview said, undue influence, you know, that was really kind of the key phrase they kept using was... Nexium yeah, is, uh, is imposing undue influence on all these different people. That's the new word for brainwashing. brainwashing right. I mean, remember in this, after Jonestown in the 70s? I grew up, you know, in the 80s, and there was a real awareness of cults and them being dangerous, and you kind of heard a few stories about maybe your parents' friend's child who, you know, had to be, like, kidnapped maybe. You know, it was like right. a... Um, I don't know. It was in the the consciousness, you, you know. The well, there were so many horror yeah. stories, right? It was like the yeah, horror stories. Liberation Army and yeah, Jim Jones, <laughs> you know? yeah, right. And then uh, I don't know what happened, but uh, I think it's just so um, scary for American the Americans to think that they wouldn't be in control of their destiny or in control of their thoughts or you know. Because the whole American thing is that, you know... Um, Rugged individualism or something? Or at least that's the point. Right. So, right. Mm-hmm. so uh, yeah, they tried to, to deprogram uh, Allison Mack. That was a big failure. Um, yeah, Ross talked about that, right? It takes four days to deprogram somebody. And that he had deprogrammed, do you say thousands or 500 or something like that? Yeah. Yeah, so... He, he said spoke. there are thousands of operating cults, so... Yeah, it's it seems like our understanding of it um, is not as good as it was, or and our interest, or it, it's like uh, it's like a, almost like you're a conspiracy theorist if you're if you have an interest in in it. I don't know, it's odd. Well, I think so, it's so, well. Sorry, go ahead. 
So anyway, the woman who wrote it, Vanessa Gordy, oh God, I always trip up on her name, Grigordi Otis, I knew from when I was 16 years old um, at the National High School Institute program at Northwestern, which is this, like super intense kind of like boot campy type program for students in the top of their class. I never forgot her. And from that, pro she was like just stuck out uh, so intensely for her kind of, um, I don't know, she just, she had a very like, uh, she was, uh, she, uh, I, I don't know. She was teased a lot for, for not being kind of like, for, like she just seemed to diminish herself and make herself seem dumb. Hmm. So I, I never forgot her. So she's the author of this love letter to Nexium. I'm like, how did this happen? How did this, this girl who I knew when I was 16, how did she, and the whole point of the program that we were involved in was like, I don't know, Dead Poet Society meets like a, um, gosh, like a, like a boot camp. And they wanted us to be like brave and questioning. And I was like, how can you not question? Like, a, like, how do you not know a cult when it's like staring you right in the face? She was like, they seemed really nice. They made me eggs. <laughs> That's enough. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, what's the? Do you know the title of that New York Times Magazine article? Oh, uh, I, I don't. But I, if you, the Frank Report wrote an article about Vanessa Gregardiatis and her love letter. You know, they had the same reaction to it. Like, what the heck? And so the question is: Is she? Was she? paid by Claire Bronfman to 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 write that. Right. It's titled Inside Nexium the quote right. sex cult unquote that preached empowerment. Why did female members follow a guru named Keith Ranieri who now stands accused of sex trafficking question mark? He made them feel like they were in control. Vanessa Gregoriadis, that's a tough one. Right, because what does it make you feel like being like being in control, like being starved and uh, branded, and <laughs> told you uh, to have sex with. Can't right. see anybody else but the boss. You know, you can't. Vanguard right. is number one. Nobody else. Right. You can't give question. me all your money. The yeah. Problem you have with Nexium, it's a defect in you. The Nexium and Renary are perfect. Whatever problems you have are from you. Right. Don't question somebody with a two hundred and twenty IQ. You know. That's Isn't it amazing that he wouldn't just put himself at a level of like an Einstein or right. it to be so extreme? Right, like so over the top. Like who has a 200? Like he should have just said like 180 or 165 or something. Something believable. No, I'm actually so far on the other <laughs> end of the bell curve, I'm not on the curve. I'm so far above like the yeah. greatest thinkers. And you know who did that too was Eccles? I mean, not to the same degree. But he likes to talk about his, his 150, I think it is, yeah, IQ. Yeah, something like that. He's, he always I, thinks he's smarter than everything else. I think he said that in one of his police interviews back in 1993. Like, I'm smarter than everybody else. No, okay. that doesn't exist. I mean, I've done the... I actually had to do the IQ test recently. And anyone who has any faith in that your intelligence, you know... It, I mean, some of the things are just so odd, like how fast you can put eggs and holes and stuff, you know. Well, IQ tests, you can you can question their validity and all kinds of stuff. There's definitely some questionable aspects, and you can actually learn 
the questions in IQ test so that they're not novel anymore. You're not seeing them fresh. So I know this question. I know the answer. So you can, you, there's ways to kind of juice it, I think, I would think. But yeah. that's a good transition into Eccles because um, Bob Ruff <laughs> just finished his first half, 100, was it 120? I don't know, it's 30, 60 hours of confusing obfuscation about the West Memphis 3 case. And he says he's coming back to it. Um, that finish, I don't know if you listened to the last one of that series, but it was a whopper. He said he made some statements that uh, I think that he won't be able to live down. But uh, any thoughts on the Bob Ruff Truth and Justice campaign and where it's going? One, I want to give you your due. Because when you said the last time we talked that Bob Ruff was giving himself enough rope to hang himself and that there was no way out of this podcast, I really didn't believe you. I I thought that he, if you don't have to, if you have... If you can magnify enough insignificant stuff and disregard enough really important stuff that you could come up with some kind of suspect, something, end it some way. But you were right. I mean, you were right. He, he, he just had to give up. Yeah, he just gave up and walked away. Do you think he'll come back? Well, apparently, what is the deal with his, the, his legal trouble? Do you know any details about that? No, it's, it's pretty vague. <laughs> You know, I guess, I don't know if I've just, there's so much, I, I, you know, I have like, right now I have five notebooks that I keep for my Nexium research, so I don't know if I'm just like so involved with Nexium that I'm just relating everything in life to Nexium, but when I hear Bob Ruff call himself, call it the Truth and Justice podcast, and I saw he was on some like, uh, fire, um, it, what is it when you research a fire? It's a fire investigator, arson, arson investigator. Yeah, he was on some arson investigator, yeah. low budget website as a um, justice advocate. It seems so close to Ranieri, where you take on the language of um, a moral person and twist it to use to defend. Uh, child killers and when he did that uh, presentation where he tried to take on the kind of persona of a critic where he was talking about how important it is we talk about the victims right. he really did it it rang hollow because he didn't know besides saying we should say their name he didn't really he didn't, know, he didn't remember it right? there was no connection yeah, right yeah, yeah it's uh it's very strange that, you know, he thinks that arson investigator is enough training to figure out criminal cases. And I think he had to do those follow-ups throughout his podcast to actually correct some of the misstatements he made. I could have swore he didn't know an Alfred plea was a guilty plea. And he had to go back through that one and say, oh, yeah, an Alfred plea is a guilty plea. You know, like I could I have sw- Did you hear that part of it? Yeah. He had to correct a lot of things. Yeah. And... His his interviews with Baldwin and Eccles were absurd. He asked so few questions. He never brought in any contradictory things. He never brought in the prosecutor's questioning of Eccles, where he caught Eccles in a lie, where he got information that he thought was in the newspaper, and then he said, oh, it's just common sense that, you know, somebody would 
want to kill somebody for fun or something, a thrill kill. You remember those little statements from the from the court record? He just uh, omitted those. So I'm not surprised that his people who listen to the so-called, quote, Truth and Justice podcast think that these guys are innocent because he left so much out. And I mean, the omission, what, what did Orwell say? Omission is the greatest form of lie. Dude, right. that, yeah, it's incredible. But my, my question is, how did Bob Ruff get his kind of like paradigm, his, you know, his worldview that every law enforcement officer is corrupt, right. every investigation is inept, and, um, you know, what do you uh, and, every, and there's, there's just like hundreds of thousands of wrongfully convicted people right. that he's going to be for. Well, is good, that excellent point. Is that, or is, does it feed his ego? And how does he have such little compassion for victims? And how, how do you live your life in such a sheltered manner? Like, is it just that ambition is your uh, defining trait? That you're willing to ignore things like typical human behavior or how, how the world usually runs to believe crazy theories that are really kind of like lightning strikes like so, so would happen so like would be so hard like certain it's like almost like chains of events that just would be so he, rare he, he made up that new alibi about miss kelly being at the trailer park and they were they were insinuating that the officer who saw um who didn't see miss kelly at the trailer park was perjuring himself to, and so there's part of this larger conspiracy that the cop is involved with this great conspiracy to frame these three guys. It's hard to believe. Forgot the cop's name, but I mean, those made on the made up um, right. alibi of Eccles is also just a whopper that doesn't, you know, begs credulity. Well, he, it's off the charts. In, in his take on how uh, Miss Kelly was <laughs> was fed his confession. Right. Oh, it, I mean, that's it's, ridiculous. It's so much ridiculous. And then, then I think he said in that last, I mean, I don't want to leave all this stuff out, but I mean, there's no there's no facts that Miss Kelly got right. I mean, I think he said a totality, a totalistic statement like that, where that's not really true. He actually the fact that Miss Kelly said that he ran after one of the boys and caught him explains how three people murdered three young boys. You know, it fits into that to the believability and all the one of the things you got to remember and one thing he never addressed is that all the jury saw all the evidence that was involved in court, much of which he left out. And came to the conclusion that they did it. Two separate juries. One for Miss Kelly and one for the other two. So he's actually contravening the in-court decisions made in a court of law. 24 standard citizens, you know. So, you know, he never really brings that up. How could the juries get it wrong, you know. So it's just it's just incredible. And I think he said in one of the podcasts that he had his faith of on the justice system from 1 to 10. He would grade it as a 4, if I remember correctly. I would grade it as a negative four. <laughs> but, I mean, I think, and he, I think he referenced something where he had to go to court or something or sit in a jury pool. Do you remember that? That but I don't know. It was in one Oh, of that was great. I was yeah. like, oh. So that was kind of an insight in his, into his attitude. And so you have an untrained person talking about all these little elements of the law that involve evidence, proper trial procedure, you know, all of these separate rules and, and leaving and omitting so much. He left out all the Satanism of Eccles, just that still continues to this day. And it's just uh, it's just astonishing, really, to see 
how brazen that that process. Yeah, and it reminds me of the uh, quote, you know, "God give me the confidence of a mediocre man." I mean, it's so much. You know, he thinks he's a behavioral expert. I mean, I like to think that's one of my strengths. Uh, you know, is uh, that or at least interest. I don't even want to say strengths because I don't want to be compared to Bob Rupp in any way, but he says he's a behavioral expert. Self-styled, right? Self-anointed? I'm just saying, like, you know, when he, he seems to not have any understanding of human behavior and no connection to human emotion. Like, he just recently wrote this tribute to his wife, and it was just like, a little bit like Keith Ranieri. I'm sorry. I think I really think I've gone. Maybe I need a vacation from this stuff, but just too much. You know, too many correlations. Like, right. Just like these really generic statements, like "she's my best friend." You know, like things that you hear all the time. You know, but that you, that with no specific details that give you a flavor for for or connection to his feelings. It's he is just a really fascinating character. Because he has so much confidence, uh, he has He's so certain. Uh, you know, even the title of his podcast is so certain: "Truth and Justice." Like this is it. You know, Pravda, right. you got it, baby. And he, he has no problem. Like I guess having people. I don't know if it's uh, Bob Ruff himself, but throwing critics off uh, his page for ask, asking a uh, critical question or, or challenging him. You know, no, it's it's remarkable. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 actually really scary. Actually, I mean, <laughs> you to to think the reach that that guy has, and how many people he's telling this is the real facts of the case, and how many people believe it. You know, I don't know what his listenership is, but I know that there's a lot of people following him and doing all the stuff. And you know, he's he's like uh, he's just the, he's omitting very important salient. Material, 500 pages of a psych report, you know, just dismissed altogether. That was actually come up by the defense, by Eccles' defense, you know, legal team. So uh, even that is compiled by Lax and all these other characters. And no, no, no. Oh, it's so great, though, that he went immediately to Eccles because he didn't have an opinion about the case. He, He ran to Eccles' house, threw off his shoes, you know, took his horrible pizza recommendation but he wouldn't read your uh book because that would that would um taint you know i I sent an email to mike (laughs) i sent an email to mike and i know he sent it to bruff saying you can interview me anytime you want i'm ready we can talk about any subject (laughs) you want and i never heard anything back so you know i was i made myself available I thought Lisa O'Brien did a fantastic job, but she was amazing. So, yes, she made it so. look so easy, you know. So. When it's really hard to debate with someone like that, because when you make a point, it go- that's not favorable to the West Memphis Three. It just goes in one ear and out the other. Yeah, it's incredible. Don't want to hear. It's, it. Yeah. Had incredible patience and tenacity. I, I just I, I wrote her a big note after that. Yeah, that takes and, a lot of courage. So I really respect her for for engaging in that conversation. Um, I mean, I think that but you're right. He, but you're, he, he think, put her down like two episodes later, right? Didn't he insult, make insulting comments about her so. two episodes later, as he always does on anyone who, you know... Oh, <laughs> man, too much. Who debates them. Huh. But, yeah, I mean, I think actually my, my 
respect for the legal process, actually listening through Bob Ruff was even uh, augmented. Like I had more respect <laughs> because I realized that these are things for professionals. These are people who understand the facts. Okay. But yeah, I mean, I really think that the legal system inside, and you see the circus-like environments where they let in video things. I think it actually distracts from a very serious process that takes time, that goes through steps by professionals. Both on, I do believe that the defense has constitutional rights and is, is obligated to have excellent representation. And I think that the state has to follow by rules, Brady rules, things like that, to divulge all the information necessary so that a trier of a fact, a judge who's been trained and been around, or a jury can make that determination. I really think that it's much better than these kind of <clears throat> off-the-cuff podcasts determining that they're going to actually more qualify. It seems like, at least in Bob Ruff's situation, that they th- seem to think they're more qualified than that process. And that's remarkable. That's a theme with him. Even when he did that self-help podcast, it was like, let's forget the... Um, hundred year history of psychiatry and let's just help each other as amateurs right because we'll do a better job do a better job oh, thing that we missed about um nexium was this appearance of a guy by the name of ben zemkis who Shem- shemkis sorry who oh, places stormy Dan- like all of these people together and has come public seeing stormy daniels keith ranieri and anthony and huma wiener uh huma right. abedin and anthony wiener at some party in 2007 or something like that. Can you comment on that? Yeah. um, Well, when the Nexium story came out, um, there were a lot of kind of um, conspiracy uh, outfits that uh, were writing, like, the Clinton sex trafficking cult, and they were writing that Claire Bronfman, not Claire, I think it was Sarah Bronfman, was an aide to Clinton, which was untrue. And basically all the typical cast of characters that appear in as villains in uh, the conspiracy world were linked to Nexium because it involves sex trafficking. So um, recently uh, this self-described private citizen Ben Shemkis made this video saying uh, when he was in Connecticut he went with his girlfriend they were hanging out in the the Yale library and two women who were dressed up like they were going to a club like that wouldn't draw any attention in the Yale library and where do you want to go when you're dressed to to the nines but the Yale library to go pick up strangers for your um, sex trap, secretive, um, A-list sex trafficking cult. Anyway, it just it was it's like this crazy story, but it it became um, popular. He took a lie detector test. He passed. Uh, then there were stories coming out that he was missing and feared dead. <laughs> so he like orchestrated so his, my opinion. He, like, went to his relative's basement and, like, hung out for a while and, like, fed stories about how he was missing and dead. I mean, just talk about self-myth-making. It was amazing. Yeah. I, I just found it amusing. Yeah. And, oh, he also said that these memories of this party didn't come to him until he was watching Smallville. And then he had a flashback, like, of these repressed oh, yeah. Nexium 
party. And Stormy Daniels was there, too. Right. I mean, you got to throw and them all in there, right? Fixates on Allison's Max shoes. And it's just like a really crazy story. And I came out and I said, I, you know, I don't believe it. And I, and I also paired it with uh, Vanessa Gregoriadis. I said, you know, on the left, they're trying to say, trying to frame it not in the context of a dangerous um, cult. And without that, you really lose all all sense of it. And uh, on, on the right or on the, I don't even know if the right is the conspiracy. It seems to lean more right. I would we say have, so. Yeah, you have these crazy imaginary stories. So it, and it was even um, suggested at one point that Claire Bronfman herself was putting out this story that uh, that Stormy Daniels, because Ben Schenkis didn't think of Stormy Daniels being connected. There was a picture of Stormy Daniels' tattoo, and they're saying, oh, it doesn't look like the brand. But next seems about cha- like turning, uh, like, sort of wholesome women. Like, it wouldn't be, Stormy Daniels would not be an interest to Keith Raniere. She has... Uh, too much, uh, I don't know, personality or self, sense of self. Right, interesting. To, to, and, and, and she's highly sexualized. He was into, you know, um, women he could dominate and control and really change the morality of, or ch- and, and, you know, and even maybe the sex, just, you know, whatever their boundaries were to violate their boundaries in a very rapey, gross way. Well, we have come to a full hour. Where can people find your podcast? Um, I'm on Spreaker, and I'm also on YouTube, Roberta Glass, all one word. And it's True Crime po- True Crime Report, right? Or is it True Crime Podcast? Yeah, yeah. I'm trying. I'm trying to sort of um, uh, phase out. It, it was originally the Wolf Sheep Podcast, but nobody really remembered it. Everybody just remembered my name, so I'm Got trying it. to sort of phase that out and phase my name in. So there's a lot of material there, guys. Go check it out. Roberta Glass. True Crime Report or Podcast on Spreaker and YouTube. Roberta, thank you very much for being on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you.